Folks, have you checked out the Irish History Podcast shop recently? Right now, I have a sale of 30% off everything when you use the code SALE30. So go to irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop and get 30% off everything when you use the discount code SALE30. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Murders in Ireland are pretty rare. Many Irish communities can go for generations without a homicide case of any kind. And when it does happen, each individual murder is always a national news story. In Crohan, County Offaly, there hadn't been a murder that anyone could remember when a local man, Kevin Barry, made a gruesome discovery in May 2003. When working on a bog, he uncovered a decapitated and disemboweled human torso in pristine condition. Understandably, this began what was an unsettling time in the local area. Crohan is a small, tight-knit community just 465 people, according to the 2011 National Census. It's the type of place where everybody knows each other, but on that morning, some were questioning how well they really knew their neighbours. The murder was particularly heinous, and no one could ignore what seemed clear. Everything indicated it had something to do with their community. The location and where the corpse had been found was too remote and too isolated. It was almost inconceivable an outsider could have happened upon it without some local involvement or knowledge. People were left wondering, could one of their own really have committed a murder like this? And if so, why? In this episode, we will learn more about the victim and how he was a Crohan native, but oddly, one no one could recognise. This is The Road to Old Crohan, an Irish mystery, episode 2, Identification. This series was written, researched and narrated by myself, Finn Dewar. Additional research was by Damien Lawler and Miriam Ryan. Sound was by Jason Looney. The artwork by Keith Hines. Creating the road to Okran was only possible because of the support of listeners of the show who fund my research at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. This project took six months and it was only through their generosity that it was possible. So I want to sincerely thank all the show patrons. If you want to support listener-funded content like this, you can support the podcast today at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. Patrons receive bonus content and early access to the show. The third episode is already on Patreon. 
The next major project in the pipeline is a series that tells the story of the Irish War of Independence. You can find out more and support my work at patreon.com forward slash Irish podcast. You can also support the podcast by checking out the shop at irishhistorypodcast.ie forward slash shop. You can get lots of unique gifts there based on Irish historical figures and events. Finally, don't forget to subscribe to the show to get part three as soon as it's available. When the Crohan murder was initially reported in the press, the day after the body was found, it was publicity that the community did not want or need. The headline in the Irish Independent read, Headless body found in bog sparks inquiry. The routine of daily life was disturbed. As parents dropped their children to school that morning, they passed strange cars on the roads as police, including a forensics team from Dublin, descended on the area. Those unfamiliar with this quiet community were easy to spot. They were hesitant and uncertain as they navigated the maze of back roads in the shade of Crohan Hill. However, once the police reached Clonarl Bog, where the body had been found, they were back on familiar territory. In this lonely, isolated spot, there were several police cars and an area of the bog had been cordoned off. A few hundred metres off the road, a single white tent with a forsaken appearance could be seen. This had been erected the day before to protect the human remains from the elements. Up to this point, the opening phase of the investigation had not revealed much. The local police were waiting for the arrival of the experts who had to travel down from Dublin. It was they who would start the inquiry in earnest. As we heard in the last episode, the most important of these was Professor Mary Cassidy, one of Ireland's state pathologists at the time. While others were hypothesising about the find, her assessment would prove pivotal. It fell to Cassidy to conduct the first examination of the body on the site. With the results eagerly awaited by those present, Cassidy and Kevin Barry, who had discovered the body, made their way across the bog to the tent. Professor Cassidy's examination that morning did not last long. There was no question the case was perplexing, but her answer was strangely unambiguous and unequivocal. Mary Cassidy emerged and informed the Gardaí that they would have no further role in the case. It would fall to others to solve this murder. Kevin Barry, who had found the body and was present that morning, remembered. She wasn't a second in, in the little hole until she said that it was a very, very old body. As Kevin described, Professor Cassidy had determined the body to be very old. How old was impossible to say, yet crucially, she had seen enough to determine no criminal investigation was warranted. There was no point in the Gardaí, the Irish police, pursuing a killer who was already dead. Mary Cassidy herself recalled. I could get back to the coroner then and say, this is not a modern body. At that point, I, I could then literally have just walked away and just left it to them. For Kevin, this was something of a relief. Well, I was a sort of more happier than that. I knew it was a long time back, I suppose. Maybe you'd feel some little bit of relief. Likewise, for the wider community, they could go easier about their day in the knowledge they were not living with a killer in their midst. However, the case was not closed. Already another investigation, one that would in time become Ireland's oldest cold case of a kind, had begun. This would be led by archaeologists from the National Museum and what was then called Ducas, the Heritage Service, which is today part of the Office of Public Works. The task facing them was monumental. All they had to go on was a human torso. There was no witnesses, no clothes. Indeed, at this point, they had no idea how old the body was. All that was known was that it was too old to warrant a police investigation. In the early stages 
archaeological excavations of this kind can be similar to a police inquiry. Much like a police investigation, the scene was carefully examined to retrieve any information or artefacts that might be relevant. While the body itself was removed to the National Museum in Dublin, where it would be preserved and studied, a team of archaeologists were dispatched to Crohan to try and gather any evidence that could help understand what had happened. The people tasked with this were the Irish Archaeological Wetlands Unit, based in University College Dublin. They had years of expertise working in bogs, so two of their archaeologists, Cathy Moore and Conor McDermott, were sent to Crohan. Their work was crucial. Even the smallest find, something that might seem totally innocuous, a shard of pottery or even a piece of grain, could prove significant. However, at Crohan they faced serious difficulties. The scene was greatly disturbed. Kevin Barry had been using a digger to excavate a drain when he found the remains, so even if Cathy and Connor found artefacts, it could be very difficult to determine with any certainty that they could be linked to the case. They could have been deposited years, decades or potentially even centuries earlier or later. Cathy Moore and Connor McDermott focused on two mounds of peat that Kevin Barry had removed from the bog before he spotted the body. It was hoped these might reveal further clues. Despite the less than ideal conditions, they did make a small but crucial discovery. Cathy now remembers what it was like and what they found. The National Monument Service and the National Museum got in touch with us and asked if we would go down and carry some limited investigation on the fine spot and in particular on the spoil that had come up with the body. So the body being found in the bucket of the machine, obviously there was a good amount of peat had come up at the same time or, you know, around on that day. So myself and my colleague Conor McDermott went down to the bog and we essentially set about investigating a section of the spoil heap that had been generated by the machine excavation. And really, I mean, it was really, I suppose, it's very low tech. We literally started going through the spoil carefully with our hands to see if there was any other human remains, any artefacts, anything anything else to do with the body had been deposited there. So while we were going through that, that's when we found three fingernails and I'll tell you, it's probably the only time where I've kind of gotten the heebie-jeebies as an archaeologist when I realised what was in my hand. Because for a second, I thought it was a hazelnut shell because you do find beautifully preserved hazelnut shells in, in the bog. But when we realised it was a fingernail, it really was a sort of slight, my stomach did a slight flip to realise what I had in my hand. And that's what we found that day. We found three of his fingernails. And we, when we found the first one, we phoned the National Museum and said, is the body missing fingernails? And Roly Reed of the National Museum went and checked and he came back and said, yes, it is. So that's what we were, we were kind of knew then, that's what we had. Um, and that was really, I suppose, that was the extent of, of the work we did. We didn't go into the drain where he'd actually been found. We left that and that was later investigated archaeologically by Jacinta Kiley. This find of the fingernails was very significant, given they would prove crucial down the line in putting together a picture of who the victim was. However, the subsequent excavations and investigations at the site failed to reveal any decisive clues or information. Leaving the scene, the archaeologists were none the wiser as to when the victim was killed, why they had suffered such a violent death, and perhaps most importantly from an archaeological perspective, what this meant. In the National Museum, an initial estimate of age didn't really help either. This dated the body to a window between the year 0 and the year 1500. Little could be drawn from such a large time frame, 
given it stretched from the Roman Empire to the dawn of the modern world. However, a systematic plan to analyse the human remains to try and understand what had happened was being put in place and indeed this was helped by what was a stroke of good fortune. Only three months earlier another ancient body had been found in a bog at Beliver County Meath, 40 kilometres from Crohan. This too had been well preserved and in great condition so it made sense for the National Museum to look at the two bodies together given they had been found in similar contexts. Given this second body would become crucial to understanding the story of the murder victim at Crohan, it's worth quickly explaining the backstory behind this related case. The second corpse had been found in February 2003 in very different circumstances. It had turned up in a factory at Beliver County Meath that processes peat into horticultural manure. Brendan Swan, the manager of the factory, now explains what exactly happens to the peat at Beliver. But before it actually gets to the screening system, it crosses what we call a tramp screen, which, as I said, takes out any foreign material like stones, sticks, uh, large clods that wouldn't actually uh, process through the screening plant. Back in February 2003, just three months before the body was found at Crohan, a lorry driver, Michael Burke, brought in a load of peat that had been removed from a bog near Beliver and tipped it onto the tramp screen Brendan described. It was then Michael spotted something and got out to take a look. Brendan has a vivid memory of that day. Michael, uh, he, he called over to the office and he says, Brendan, can you come over here? He says, I think there's a body over here. So I went over with him and uh, we had a look and I said, it is a body, all right. With two well-preserved bodies having been discovered, the National Museum established a special unit called the Bog Bodies Research Project, which was led by Isabella Mulhall. Isabella now explains what this project was. We commenced the National Museum of Ireland Bog Bodies Research Project. We set about trying to establish a team of specialists that would look at the remains and we wanted to ensure that all elements of the remains were studied in as much detail as was feasible at the time. So we started off with a team of about five or six different people, including fingerprinters, pathologists, osteoarchaeologists and so forth, And before we knew it, we had a team of about 40 specialists involved in the project from six different countries. And many of these specialists had huge experience in assessing human remains and more importantly, mummified human remains. And as I said, mummified human remains just means remains where soft tissue has been preserved. So essentially, bog bodies are divided into both bog skeletons, where soft tissue doesn't remain, and bog mummies where tissue is present, but collectively we call them bog bodies. Before any major tests could begin, the first challenge was to stabilise the remains. The body from Crohn had been submerged in a bog, but once it was exposed to oxygen, it began to deteriorate, so the museum first had to prepare an environment that would prevent this from happening. And during this time, the remains were kept in a refrigerator in the conservation department in Collins Barracks, so we had to ensure that the remains were kept cool, They were kept saturated and they were also kept in dark conditions because we tried to replicate the fine spot. Then the investigation proper could begin. A key ethos in the museum was to treat the bodies with respect and care. They were always cognizant that they were dealing with the remains of a human being. With this in mind, they employed tests that were as non-invasive as possible. Indeed, you yourself may have had some of the scans Isabella now describes. 
we went to the Beacon Clinic and um, they were subject to CT scans and MRI scans. And I suppose a CT scan is like a virtual autopsy. So we can see inside the remains without necessitating any sort of post-mortem examination in, in the traditional sense. So we were able to gain insights into the level of preservation of the internal organs, for example, the stomach remains, the lungs remains, the liver remains. There's also evidence of, of a diaphragm as well. So the CT and the MRI scanning um, provided huge insights into the remains and, you know, gave us a slice by slice assessment of the remains. And we were able to use this data then to reconstruct the sort of physique of the remains and how the individual would have looked as a living human being. The results of these tests, as we shall see, allowed the team in the museum to find out incredible detail about the final hours of the murder victim, Akron. However, the first step was identifying him. Millions of people have lost weight with personalised plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Identification would obviously be very different when compared to a modern case. Over the rest of this podcast, we will see how the Bog Bodies Research Project began unlocking the case by building up a remarkably detailed picture of the victim, even though they only had his torso. The best place to start is with the basics, a name. The victims obviously once had a name once upon a time, but this was lost to history and it seemed very unlikely it would ever be ascertained. In such circumstances, the National Museum utilises a naming convention that is employed across Europe. You may have heard of terms like Jane or John Doe, often used by the police in North America to identify unknown bodies they find. Well, in similar cases, archaeologists name the remains they have after the locality where they were discovered. So, for example, in the case of the body that had turned up in Brandon Swan's factory in Beliver, this had come from the townland of Cloney Cavan, so he was called Cloney Cavan Man. In a similar fashion, the body found at Crohan by Kevin Barry was called Old Crohan Man. The old was not a reference to the age of the body, but rather the specific area near Crohan Hill where he was found, the townland of Old Crohan, which rather confusingly is located in the wider civil parish of Crohan. While naming him was relatively straightforward, understanding what happened was far more complex. One of the most important things was determining the age of the body. When had he lived? And more importantly, when had he died? Isabella Mulhall, who led the Bog Bodies Research Project, now describes how this was done. So in order to date the remains from Old Crohn and indeed the remains from Cloney Cavan and Beliver Bog, we took samples from the individuals and um, submitted them to laboratories for radiocarbon dating. So they were able to essentially tell us when these remains died and when they were placed in the bog. An initial assessment had estimated Old Crohn Man had died at some point between the year zero and the year 1500. However, after scientific tests were conducted, the findings returned surprising results. 
So in the case of Old Cahan Man, we took a sample of the little withy or hazel rope that was found associated with the remains and this was sampled and sent in for radiocarbon dating and uh, returned the date of 365 to 175 BC. We also took a sample of skin from the remains and again the dates came in very, very similar. So there is a slight window there between 365 to 175 BC. What we can say is that there's a 95% probability that the remains were in between those two different dates. Clearly the body was much older than originally thought. At the same time, the team were also investigating the other body, Tony Cavanman, which had been found in the factory at Beliver. The results in this case were no less surprising. And in the case of Cloney Cavanman, we took samples of the skin for radiocarbon dating. Cloney Cavanman returned a date from the early Iron Age as well, from 392 to 201 BC. This was startling. The two bodies had been found within a few months of each other, purely by coincidence. But these tests now revealed the two had lived and died around 2,300 years ago. It was even possible that they had lived at the same time. Indeed, it was even possible their paths had crossed in life, given they were found within 40 kilometres of each other. This was not the only similarity between the cases. Indeed, as we shall see, some aspects were very similar indeed and unsettling. As the Bog Bodies Research Project continued their research, the picture of who Old Crohanman was deepened. They were able to estimate he was aged between 25 and 40, as was Crony Cabinman when they died. Determining the height was very tricky. All that remained of old Crohanman was his torso and arms, so ascertaining his height was a challenge. Indeed, when he was initially discovered, it was believed he might have been 6 foot 6 inches tall. This would have made him a giant at the time. This figure has since been revised down. Isabella now explains this process. Determining the height of the individual was difficult somewhat. and um, We have to allow for the fact that there could be anything between 0 and 15% shrinkage of the remains in the bog. So the bog has an impact on the remains. Um, the bog causes the remains to take on a very tanned appearance. Um, the hair of the individuals, if it's present, takes on a reddish appearance. The bones become demineralized. And also, as I said, there is that element of possible shrinkage in the bog anywhere between 0 and 15%. So we have to be mindful of that when trying to gauge the extent of the, the height of the individual and indeed his stature. So I suppose we took the two extremes and we found a midpoint between the two. So we took the minimum height that the individual would have been and the maximum height that the individual would have been and five, 11 and a half inches seemed to be the midpoint of these two Heights, And we were able to determine the height by using CT scans, also by physically measuring the arm span of the individual. So a combination of factors allowed us then to determine this approximate height for the individual. But as I said, it's an educated guess. It's a combination of factors that have allowed us to arrive at this particular figure. Even at this revised figure, Orkrohanman was comparatively very tall for the time. The other body from this period being examined in the museum, Crony Cavanman, was around the average height at the time, standing at 5 foot 5 inches. Height is not just useful in terms of gaining a sense of the stature of a person. How tall someone is is determined by numerous factors, not least among them their health. In the Iron Age, famine and food shortages were very regular features of life. So being tall implied Old Crohanman probably did not endure any major food shortages or famine in his life. If true, this suggests he was from the elite of society, something that is supported by other evidence. For example, 
Earlier, we heard how Cathy Moore had discovered two fingernails and when Isabella turned to these and his hands in general, she was able to further support this idea he was from the upper echelons of society. The nails in the case of Old Cochranman had the appearance of being very well manicured and the fingers themselves didn't have any signs of wear or signs of somebody who had carried out extensive manual labour. So these different elements combined sort of seem to point to the fact that this individual may have been a special individual in society, may have been, I suppose, apart from other people in society and uh, may not have been engaged, as I said, in manual labour, may have been from the higher echelons in society. Um, And these were, I suppose, indicators, the the manicured fingernails, the absence of wear to the fingertips and, you know, the general good condition of the hands. So while Old Crohenman was clearly an unusual person of one kind or another, further similarities between his case and that of Cloney Cavanman emerged. While the two men had lived around the same time, it became clear Cloney Cavanman may have had a similar background to Old Crohenman. He was of average height for the time, but he was far from an average individual. Cloney Cavanman's hair had been well preserved in the bog. It had been swept forward from the back of his neck to the top of his head in a style that would have created the impression that he was taller than he actually was. Most interestingly though, this was held in place using a prehistoric hair gel of a kind made from a resin mixed with an oil. When analysed, it was discovered that the resin was from a pine tree native to southern France and Spain and had travelled a considerable distance to Ireland in the Iron Age. This suggests Cloney Cavanman had access to rare and exotic goods and he too presumably belonged to the elite of society like Old Crohenman. It was increasingly obvious that there was links of one kind or another between the cases of Old Crohenman and Cloney Cavanman. When I visited Crohan, Damien Lawler, the local historian, took me to the very spot where Old Crohenman had been found and as we walked across the bog he neatly summarised what we know about these individuals at this point. Both of them are atypical of, of what an average person is going to be because most people are, are going to have to, you know, to work. They're going to have to be able to provide wood to be burnt. Um, they're going to have to be able to provide food for people to eat. And then you look at the at old Crotton Man's hands and you see the fact that they, they couldn't find any evidence that he'd done any work. Um, they, 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 look, they look at his nails in terms of there, there's no marking on the, on the nails and stuff like that. Clooney Cavan Man then, with his hairstyle, with the pine resin... That, that's 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 found in the the almost man bun that's on, on top of his head. The, 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 the that that thing that's tied up with that sort of organic hair tie at the top of his head. Um, it, it, these are people that are that are much different from what what you would expect the ordinary person to be. We now have a better sense of who Old Crohan Man was. In the next episode, we need to turn to the details of his murder. Professor Mary Cassidy, the pathologist, returns to explain what she found when she conducted a much more detailed examination of his remains. His brutal death was far more complex than initially thought. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 